John chapter 14. For this morning, we'll begin reading in verse 15. Last week, our brother Steve reminded us of many great, precious promises that Jesus explains in verses 1 to 14. Promises of a home in heaven. Promises of Jesus' return for His bride, the church. Promises of life and joy in Him as He reveals to us His glory, His power, His nature. Promises that we will share in His work and that because of Him, because of His Spirit, that the work of God would flourish and would grow in tremendous and, and glorious ways. We see the promise of prayer, that promise that through Christ we can go to the Father and to ask what we need to accomplish His mission for His glory and that He will abundantly provide all that we need to glorify Him in the days that we live. The Father will hear, He will answer according to His goodness and His wisdom. Look with me now at verses 15 to 24. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? And not to the world. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Let's pray. Gracious father, as we study your word, strengthen our faith. Deepen our love for you and for one another. Prepare us for action that we may be bold, courageous, strong, kind, gracious, humble ambassadors for Christ wherever we go. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let not your hearts be troubled. This morning, I want to draw your attention to six reasons and then a whole host of subpoints as to why our hearts should not be troubled, but that our love for and confidence in God should be greatly strengthened and increased even in the midst of great tragedy and trial and heartbreak. Let not your hearts be troubled. A, on your outline, you who love Jesus will share in his glorious work. You will share in his glorious work. Now, admittedly, upon first glance, that might not seem all that encouraging to hear the word work 
is not necessarily a word that we always associate with comfort. The word work is not a word that we naturally love and gravitate towards. Uh, in fact, some of us spend hours a day on Facebook playing video games trying to avoid work. And so we tend to have at times negative feelings and connotations towards that word work. But we should feel very differently about the work that Jesus Christ talks about here because this is a good work. This is a work that arises out of our love for him. Let me show you what I mean in verse 12. Jesus promises that we will share in his work, that we will, in fact, continue his work and that that work will grow. It will expand. It will multiply in incredible ways. In verse 13, Jesus invites us to pray and to ask the Father for anything, for everything that we need to accomplish the work that Christ has given to us. And then in verse 14, Jesus promises that God will hear. He will answer those prayers. He will abundantly provide all that His children need to accomplish His work. And then in verse 15, Jesus says something that might at first sound surprising when we hear it. It it might seem to be a little out of place, a little out of context, but it is not. Verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What is this about? Why does Jesus say this here and now? What's the point that Jesus is driving at? Well, in light of the context, Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will desire to carry on my work. You will desire to be obedient to me, to carry on my mission. You will recognize my glory, my worth. You'll want to be a part of what I am doing. And so Jesus says, if you love me, You will keep my commandments. You'll be obedient unto Christ. Now, it's at this point that we need to immediately clarify some things about this verse so that we don't run in wrong directions. Number one on your outline, we need to remember that when it comes to loving and obeying Jesus, one is the root and the other the fruit. One is the root and the other the fruit. And it's important to keep this distinction in mind. In fact, it was so important to Christ that he mentioned it four times in, 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 in this passage. Four times does Jesus emphasize that the root is loving him and the fruit is being obedient to him. In verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then verse 24, he says the same thing. But in the negative, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So loving Jesus is the root and the fruit of loving Jesus. The result of loving Jesus is obeying him, keeping his word, carrying on his work and his mission that he has entrusted to us. Number two on your outline, when it comes to loving Jesus, we don't love him graciously but responsively. We love Jesus responsively. We do not love Jesus graciously. Listen, because grace, by very definition, is something undeserved. 
Grace is something undeserved. When you love someone graciously, you are choosing to love them in spite of their faults, in spite of their sins, in spite of their mistakes, in spite of maybe their weird, quirky habits that you notice. This is in a very real way, the way that we love one another. We must choose to love one another in spite of the failings, our sins, our our shortcomings. And I'll tell you, it is a wonderful thing to be loved graciously. Amen? It is a wonderful thing to be loved like this. My wife loves me this way. She loves me graciously. She loves me in spite of a whole host of sins and and failures and shortcomings about me. And I love her the same way. I love her in spite of just the mountain of, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the point is, it is a precious thing to be loved graciously. And brothers and sisters, this is the way that God loves us. He loves us graciously. He loved us when we were his enemies, when we were rebels, when we were defiant and wicked and spiritually dead. Romans 5, 8 says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us graciously and he died to take away our shame and our guilt and our condemnation. God chooses to love sinners like us in spite of who and what we are. But this is not the way that we love Jesus. When we speak of loving Jesus, we we do not love him graciously. We cannot point to any sin, to any shortcoming, to any failure, to any fault in Christ that is unlovely or undesirable in any way. He is altogether perfect and kind and loving and just and righteous. Rather, we love Jesus responsively. We love Jesus reflexively. We love Jesus in response to His love. We love Jesus in response to His work, to His work of grace that He has accomplished in our hearts and minds. Our love for Jesus arises as our eyes and our hearts are opened to see Him and to behold Him for who He is. For His beauty, His grace, His glory, His His redemptive work on our behalf. As the Apostle John said in 1 John 4.19, We love because He first loved us. So we love Him responsively. We love Him reflexively as we behold Him in His glory and His grace. Number three on your outline, when we love Jesus, we love His Word. We love His commands because they reflect His character. They reflect and show and model His character and nature. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Thus, it is impossible to truly love Jesus and to hate His commands, to hate His word. It is impossible to see the goodness and the glory of Christ and to despise his word, to despise his will, to despise his gracious mission that he has entrusted to us. Listen, you are in utter contradiction 
If you say that you love Jesus as your Lord and Savior and yet you refuse to do what he commands, you refuse to respect his word, you refuse to honor his authority. Why is this the case? Why is there an inseparable link between loving Jesus and loving his word? Simply this, the commands of Jesus, the words of Jesus are an expression of who he is. Is, uh, they are an expression of His character and His nature. Therefore, to hate or to reject or to refuse His Word is equivalent to hating and rejecting Christ Himself. Jesus says what He says because of who He is. Jesus commands what He commands because of His good, righteous, holy character. Therefore, you cannot love Jesus and hate his word. You cannot love Jesus and utterly reject his commands. And this is why Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We have, brothers and sisters, the great joy, the great blessing, the great privilege to share in Christ's work to share in, in the great commission, the mission that, that Christ has entrusted to us. And God will graciously provide all that we need to succeed, to be obedient to Him as faithful ambassadors of Christ. Now, we don't know for sure exactly what the disciples were thinking as they heard Jesus say these words. Perhaps they were a little skeptical. Perhaps they were a little apprehensive as they hear Jesus talking about leaving them and, and, and yet of them carrying on his work and his mission. Maybe they were thinking to themselves, this is not going to work. If Jesus leaves us and we are left here to carry on his work, we are not strong enough. We are not smart enough. Our track record to this point is not so good. We need some more firepower. We need more than we have to offer. And perhaps this is why Jesus goes where he goes next. Look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says to them immediately upon telling them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Be on your outline. Let not your hearts be troubled. The entire Godhead, all three members of the Trinity is for you. Is for you. These are incredible words. Here Jesus identifies the Father, Himself, the Son, and the Spirit as they are together working in, in perfect harmony and unity to care for and to provide for their children. In verse 16, we see the Son asking. We see the Father sending. We see the Spirit helping. We see the Trinity at work to bless, to help help to strengthen, to dwell in those who love and follow Christ. If you get nothing else from this morning's message, I pray that you get this. It is good. It is real good to be a child of God, 
to be a follower of Christ. It is the blessed life, the eternally blessed life to be a child of God. Just a few verses later, Jesus would say in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Listen, and we will come to him and make our home with him to be a child of God is to be loved by God, to be loved by the Father, to be indwelt by God, to be empowered by God, to be protected by God. And in these verses, Jesus explains and clarifies to us some very important truths concerning this coming helper, the Holy Spirit. Jesus identifies his, his, his identity, his function and something of his purpose. Firstly, note just a few things on your outline. Number one, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit who is another helper, one who will never leave us. Verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus is soon to ascend into heaven. Once there, he will make a request of the Father. And then together they will send the Spirit. They will send this helper, uh, another helper. Now, it is important to note that the helper that Jesus speaks of is distinct from the Father. Jesus asks the Father to send the helper. This helper is also distinct from Jesus. Jesus says that it is another helper. And for those of you keeping score at home, this implies that Jesus was and is the first helper and there will be another helper coming like him. And this helper is, of course, the Holy Spirit. And for just a moment, brothers and sisters, be amazed at the grace and the goodness of God in sending us a divine helper, in sending us the help that we need. Please notice what Jesus does not say. Please notice what Jesus does not say to his disciples and to people like us who are so weak, who are so frail, who are so easily distracted. Please know what, uh, notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, I'm going to ascend back into heaven and when I get there, I'm going to ask the Father and we are going to send you the rule book. And, and, and then when we send you this, this rule book, it's important that you study and study and study and study and perform for our amusement. Jesus does not say that. Jesus does not say, I'm going to ascend to the Father and, I, and I, we're going to send the observer so that, so that we can keep an eye on you. And that, and that if, you, if you step out of line, we'll know. Because the observer will tell us. Jesus does not say, I'm going to ascend to the Father and we will send you the enforcer, the terminator, so that if you step out of line, you'll be swimming with the fishes. Get it? Right? Jesus does not say any of this. What does Jesus promise? Another helper. Now, is there anyone in this room at this time who would like to object to that? Is there anyone who say, I don't, I don't need help, okay? I, I, I got it all together. I got it all figured out. I am just fine on my own. You, you can keep your divine helper. No, of course not. That is insanity. As we consider ourselves and our weakness and our frailness, we are desperately in need of God. We are desperately in need of this helper that Jesus promises will come to be with us and in us forever. 
When we think about the Holy Spirit, we should think first and foremost about the grace of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, that He would send us exactly what we need. Please note this on your outline, that this word helper, as you well know, is the Greek word paraclete. And it essentially means helper or advocate or one who comes alongside. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us. And as we'll see, he will reside in us forever to comfort, to empower, to convict, to teach, to shape, to help us as we love and follow Christ. Now, I think it's important to note that there are a couple of words that Jesus could have used when talking about and describing this coming helper. Jesus calls this helper another helper in verse 16. And it's that word Another that we want to consider for just a moment. Jesus could have used the Greek word heteros when, when describing this helper. He could have said that, that the Father would send heteros parakletos, which basically means another that is kind of similar but fundamentally different. Right? Um, heteros means similar but different. In Galatians 1.6, Paul uses this very word to talk about another gospel, a false gospel. This gospel is heteros. It is a little similar, but it is fundamentally different. It is kind of like the true gospel, but fundamentally it is different. So it is heteros gospel. It is false gospel. It is essentially different. Please note this on your outline. Jesus does not use the Greek word heteros. In talking about the Holy Spirit, he uses the word alos, which means another of the exact same kind. Jesus says that he's going to send them alos, parakletos, another helper who is just like him. Alas, Parakletos. This is remarkable. Not only because this teaches us something about the Holy Spirit, but it also teaches us something profound about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Yes. He is our advocate. Yes. And so is the Lord Jesus Christ. As he ascends into heaven, he continues his work as our helper, as our advocate. As he ascends to the Father, he does not stop his work on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 says he, referring to Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our faithful high priest is always living to make intercession for us. He has not stopped. First John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. There's that word, paraclete. We have an advocate, a paraclete with the Father. Who is it? John says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, dear Christian, let not your hearts be troubled. We have not one divine helper. We have two divine helpers who are working on our behalf. And this is good news. Brothers and sisters, we see here that the Holy Spirit is distinct from Jesus. And yet he is just like Jesus. He is another helper of the exact same divine essence and nature as Jesus. And Jesus says here that the Spirit will dwell within us 
forever. Verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And forever is a long time. Forever is a very long time. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are never separated from God. Amen. We are never separated from Christ. We are never without help. We always have the helper with us and in us. Number two on your outline, Jesus explains that this helper is, in fact, the spirit of truth who will reside in every believer. And this is extremely helpful for at least three reasons noted on your outline. Reason number one, this directly links and connects Jesus and the Holy Spirit together. Just a few verses earlier, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus made the incredible, the mind-blowing, the monumental statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Here, Jesus says that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So, Jesus is the truth. And this coming helper is the spirit of truth. Therefore, this spirit of truth must be the spirit of Christ as Jesus is himself truth. And so it should be no surprise to us that in Romans chapter eight, verse nine, the Apostle Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as both the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ. The fact is, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth because he wants us to see this connection to himself and to this coming promised helper. Reason number two why this is so helpful, this title, Spirit of Truth, helps identify how this helper will work and function. How will this helper help? What will he use to accomplish his purpose, his mission, as he is our paraclete, our advocate, our comforter, our teacher. Well, Jesus tells us he is the spirit of truth. Therefore, it is safe to assume, especially as we look at the rest of Scripture, that this helper will use the truth to accomplish his work of helping, comforting, strengthening, and sanctifying God's people. According to Ephesians 6.17, this helper has a tool. He has a weapon, a sword, that he uses to accomplish his good purposes. Ephesians 6.17 says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so with this title, Spirit of Truth, Jesus is identifying for us the means that this helper will use to accomplish his sanctifying work in us. Reason number three why this is so helpful is this title anticipates the Spirit's role in inspiring the writing of the New Testament. The spirit of truth would inspire these men, these apostles, to write so much of the New Testament. This is clearly explained in verse 26. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is very significant. This helps us answer questions. Some questions like this. 
how can I really trust the New Testament? How can I trust what the apostles taught and wrote and, and recorded in the New Testament? How can I really believe that what they wrote was and is true and accurate and reliable? Well, simply put, Jesus promises that the Spirit would come and would teach them all things. That He would bring to their remembrance all the things that Jesus had said to them and taught them. Listen, based solely upon human ability, there is no way that we could ever really trust and believe all that the apostles wrote. But with the divine help and assistance of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things, bringing all things to their remembrance, they are trustworthy. They are reliable as they are filled and inspired of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter would explain it this way in 2 Peter 1.21. He said, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Part of that carrying along, we learn here, includes teaching, includes the Spirit bringing to their remembrance all that Jesus had done and taught. So this title, Spirit of Truth, is wonderfully helpful to us as we understand the Spirit's identity, work, and mission. Jesus also makes it abundantly clear at the end of verse 17 that the world, those who remain in darkness... Those who refuse to believe the truth concerning Jesus, that they are unable to receive this spirit. They're not able to, to receive this spirit of truth because, says Jesus, they have rejected the spirit. They have rejected the spirit's testimony concerning Christ. The world largely remains hardened in in opposition to the ministry and testimony of the Spirit. And so Jesus says that the world will not and cannot receive the Spirit. But the disciples, on the other hand, whether they fully knew it yet or fully understood it yet, they had seen and experienced and believed much of the Spirit's work and testimony concerning Jesus. And this is why Jesus says at the end of verse 17, You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The disciples to this point had already seen and experienced much of the Spirit's work. And yet Jesus here promises them even more. That they would see and behold and come to know and discern much more of Him and His work in ministry. So Jesus is trying to, again, strengthen and encourage His disciples as He is soon about to go to the cross. Let not your hearts be troubled. You have something that the world does not. And it is of infinite value. It is of infinite comfort and importance, this gift that you are given. Let not your hearts be troubled. The entire Godhead, all three members of the Trinity are at work for you. Let not your hearts be troubled. See on your outline, God will never abandon you, but will abundantly provide his life and his presence. Jesus makes this comforting promise in verses 18 to 19 that he will abundantly provide his life and his presence to them. Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. Jesus promises that he will not leave them as orphans. They will not remain. They will not experience an orphan-like condition for their love and devotion to him. They, they won't be like orphans. They won't be without someone to love them, to care for them, to provide for them. No, they will be well provided for. They will be well loved. They will be well guarded and well protected. Jesus promises this. Orphans, they need a home. Orphans need a home. And Jesus has already promised in verse 2 that in his father's house are many rooms and that Jesus is going to prepare a place, a home for them in heaven. Now, last week, our, our brother Steve Overholt said that this at least guarantees us a bunk bed in heaven, maybe even more. And I'm, I'm banking on the more. But 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 at least at the very least in this, we are guaranteed a bunk bed in heaven. But the point that Jesus is making here is his children are never orphaned. His children are never forsaken, are never abandoned, are never left without his loving care in their life. God's children are never neglected by him. We have a father who loves us, who always knows what is best for us. I love how in verse 19, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he's going to live. Jesus just says it emphatically in verse 19. I'm going to live. Jesus knows that resurrection is coming. Jesus knows that he is soon to be arrested, that he is soon to be crucified. But listen, he knows equally well that he is going to live. The resurrection may have been a a, a surprise to the disciples, but listen, it was not a surprise to Jesus. The resurrection was not a, a shock to Jesus. He knew it was coming. He anticipated it and he spoke of it. He knew that he would conquer death that he would give the gift of eternal life to all who love and trust him. So let not your hearts be troubled. God will never abandon you, but will abundantly provide his life in his presence. D on your outline, let not your hearts be troubled. You are securely loved, kept, and protected in the Godhead. You are securely loved, kept, and protected in the Godhead. Look with me again at verses 20 to 21. These, these are precious words. These are words that are worthy of our slow and careful consideration. These are words that speak to us about the strength and the security of our salvation. These are words that speak to us about the assurance of God's eternal love for us His people. Look again at verse 20. Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus says, In that day you will know. 
There is coming a day. Jesus is looking forward to a day post-resurrection when the disciples will begin to finally understand and grasp this amazing reality that Jesus talks about here. You might be thinking, what amazing reality are you referring to? Well, look at Jesus' words. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father. Jesus says that one day after his resurrection, that they would begin to finally understand and grasp his oneness with the Father. That Jesus is in the Father, in the Father's will, in the Father's love, in perfect, complete, full union and relationship with the Father post-resurrection through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. The disciples would come to better know this and to understand this precious truth. But look again at verse 20. Jesus says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father And you in me, and I in you. What does this mean? What does it mean to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us? The New Testament writers make a big deal about this precious truth, and rightfully so. To be In Christ, brothers and sisters, is to be identified with Christ, to share in his life, to be spiritually placed into Christ, identifying with his life, death, burial and resurrection to be in Christ is to die to self. To find our life, our meaning, our purpose, our joy, our salvation in Him. There are many places in the New Testament where we could go to see these beautiful truths explained and presented to us. Let me give you just a few. Romans 8, 1, you know these verses well. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only those in Christ are free from condemnation. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul writes, And because of Him, referring to the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. Listen, it was the Father's good pleasure. It was the Father's good pleasure and will and work that we would be saved, that we would be placed into Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Everyone in Christ will be saved, will experience eternal life. There are no exceptions. Everyone in Christ will be resurrected unto eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Anyone, everyone in Christ is a new creation. By God's grace, we are in Christ. And by God's grace, Christ dwells in us through his spirit. This means we are never alone, never forsaken, never cast aside, We always have Christ with us and in us through his spirit. 
In verse 21, Jesus emphasizes again that those who love him keep his commandments and are thus loved by the father and loved by him. Jesus says at the end of verse 21, and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And this gets at the heart of the gospel. This gets at what makes the gospel such good news. In Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we are reconciled to the Father. In Christ, we are given the gift of the Spirit. In Christ, we are secure, kept, and beloved, placed into His body, His bride. And as we live our Christian life, as we grow to know Christ more and more, as we grow to know more of God through the Spirit's work, through the Word of God, we come to comprehend more of the depth of God's love for His children. We come to grasp more of the glory of God and the grace of God in the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us. And by the way, in Ephesians 1, Paul prays for this very thing. Paul prays that the Ephesian believers would only grow to see and to know more fully the love and the work of God. He says in Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? Who believe let not your hearts be troubled you are securely loved kept and protected in the Godhead and the more that we love and follow Christ the more deeply we should come to understand God's profound love and grace towards us E on your outline let not your hearts be troubled through the indwelling Holy Spirit God lives in you demonstrating his grace and glory If we look again at verses 22 and 23, we see that it is obvious that the disciples are, at least in this moment, having a hard time understanding exactly what Jesus is saying. They are not yet connecting the dots. And so a question is asked. Look again at verse 22. John 14, verse 22 says, Judas... Not Iscariot said to him. Now stop there for just a moment. I just would like to point out that this poor man probably spent the rest of his life saying that. Judas, not Iscariot, not, not Iscariot. I'm the, I'm the Judas that didn't betray Jesus. Okay, so no doubt he spent his entire life having to explain this fact. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus, I don't get it. You you talk about manifesting yourself to us. Why don't you just manifest yourself to the entire world? I mean, let's get this thing going, Jesus. You're going to manifest yourself to us? Manifest yourself to everyone. How is it possible that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the entire world? Jesus, I don't understand. I don't understand the plan. I don't understand what we are trying to accomplish here. Judas, not Iscariot, was confused. He did not understand how was Jesus going to manifest himself to the disciples, to those who love him, but not to the entire world. The answer is found in verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, 
and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Please note this on your outline. The word Jesus uses here, translated as home, occurs only one other place in the New Testament. And that's verse 2 of this same chapter, where Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In verse 2, Jesus talks about us having a room in heaven, a home in heaven, in glory. And then in verse 23, Jesus talks about God the Father and God the Son coming to make their room, their home in us. And that is amazing. That truly is an overwhelming thought to think about. How is it possible? How is it that God the Father and God the Son come and make their home, their room in followers of Christ? How do they manifest themselves to to those who love Christ and not to the entire world? The answer is through the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is divine, possessing the same essence and nature as the Father and the Son. This is why Paul wrote so emphatically to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Again, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And then again, in 2 Corinthians six sixteen, Paul says, For we are the temple of the living God. Please note this on your outline. Jesus' words help us understand the truth of the Trinity and the deity of the Holy Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit residing in you is tantamount to having God the Father and God the Son coming to make their home in you. Why? Because the Spirit is God. The Spirit is of one essence and nature with the Father and Son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this helps explain to us why we should never seek to grieve the Holy Spirit or to quench the Holy Spirit, for that would be to grieve God. That would be to quench God's work in our lives. Instead, we should gladly submit to the Spirit's work and to the Spirit's leading and to the Spirit's word as we see it clearly laid out in Scripture. Let not your hearts be troubled. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit, God lives in you, demonstrating His grace and glory. Lastly, F on your outline, let not your hearts be troubled. Because all that Jesus says here is, in fact, the gracious will and desire of the Father. In verse 24, Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear that this is not just his idea, but that everything that he has spoken is the will and the command of the Father. Listen, Jesus has not gone rogue Jesus is not at odds with the Father on this matter. 
They are perfectly unified in this gracious plan and in this gracious work. So Jesus says in verse 24, whoever does not love me, does not keep my words. Jesus again emphasizes that it will be obvious. It will be discernible as to who it is who loves him and who doesn't. Those who love Christ will love his word, will embrace his word, while those who do not love Christ will not keep or obey his word. But then he says next in verse 24, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. All that Jesus has spoken, all of the gracious promises that Jesus has explained here are the father's will, are the father's desire. Jesus would have us understand. Jesus would desire to magnify the Father's love, the Father's joy in saving us, the Father's joy and pleasure in sending and giving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, brothers and sisters, do not ever suppose that Jesus is kind, that Jesus is gracious, while the Father, on the other hand, oh, He's very hard. He is very angry. He's very unloving. He's not like Jesus. Don't ever suppose that. Don't ever entertain those kinds of blasphemy and heretical ideas. Don't ever think that salvation was Jesus' idea and that the Father just reluctantly went along with it. No, it is the Father's joy. It is the Son's joy. It is the Spirit's joy to see sinners saved, to see Christ loved, to see Christ magnified, to see believers indwelt by the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Let not your hearts be troubled. You who love Jesus will share in his gracious work. Let not your hearts be troubled. The entire Godhead, all three members of the Trinity are at work on your behalf. Let not your hearts be troubled. God will never abandon you, but will abundantly provide his life and his presence. Let not your hearts be troubled. You are securely loved, kept and protected in the Godhead. Let not your hearts be troubled through the indwelling Holy Spirit. God lives in you, demonstrating his grace and his glory. Let not your hearts be troubled because all that Jesus says here is, in fact, the gracious will And desire of the Father. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are good. And all your works are good. Thank you for your gracious will to save us. To give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Help each one of us to, in light of these verses, to honestly examine our hearts to see whether or not we truly love Christ and whether or not we are manifesting that love through obedience to Him and to His Word. Father, we pray that we would never grieve the Holy Spirit, that we would never quench the Spirit, but that we would walk in the Spirit, that we would be submissive to the Spirit, that we would long to be obedient to the Spirit's leading in our lives. Father, we pray that in these days you would use us for your honor and glory. We pray that we would be a people who do not lose heart. But, we, but remain confident and strong in you, in your character, in your nature, in your promises, in your work. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.